0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village, or to connect with us, you can find
1: us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey, everybody. So we're in Hosea 10, hey, Matt. We're going to read the whole thing. It's 15 verses, should be on the screen. All right. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they'll say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows on the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the call of beth Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on the altars, on their altars, and they shall say the mountains cover us, and to the hills fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. The nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spread their fair neck. I spread her fair neck. But I'll put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. First time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortress shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you O Bethel because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be, cut, shall be utterly cut off.
0: You all can be seated and children can be dismissed. Their classes. Again with the encouragement, just so much. My name is Michael, thanks so much for hanging out with us. I've quoted uh, Tim Chester nearly every week. When we preach, uh, we kind of look at commentaries and stuff uh, on the latter end of sermon prep, predominantly, and man, his has just been really helpful and applicable. And so some commentaries err on the side of like, technicality and others on like practicality. And he has kind of like a, a mix of both. So I, I want to start off by just reading a quote from him. This is what he says, it "says many books have been written to help Christians cope with adversity. Few have been written to help cope with prosperity. That's kind of what, what we're talking about a bit today. When considering things that can, can rip us or, or that can lure our hearts from rest in Jesus, from the love of Jesus, from loving Jesus, we can throw darts at lots of things and we can aim at a lot of enemies. You know, the big scary world out there, man, it's just so easy for them to pull us away or or enemies lurking in the shadows out there or political personalities or parties or movements or the media or influencers or old heads like me or kids these days. You know, just lots of things can pull us away from the love of Jesus. And, And when we think about those things, it could be the sin of our neighbor or just the concern about our, our very own concern about the essence of who God is, the God that we love and serve, but one easy to overlook seed that can pull us away is the seed of comfort and independence and prosperity. And that's what that quote is getting at. There's, there's lots of stuff to say, hey, man, when, when life is hard, this is what it looks like to turn to Jesus, but, but what about when life is not hard? What does it look like? That's what Hosea is talking about today. When, when humans flourish, we have this incredible tendency not to be thankful, to let thankfulness fill our hearts, not to be thankful for the provision that has come from the Lord, but to be selfish and to forsake the Lord altogether, to consider ourselves the provider and, and build a world independent from the giver of all good gifts. That's what Hosea is talking about the main idea is something like this. The, the blessing of prosperity is a slippery slope towards the dread of independence. And I know in a world like ours, independence is the goal. It's like the king to be independent, to be free, and yet... That's a slippery slope of, of the dread of independence for those who find their hope in Christ alone. So, Hosea, we've been journeying together. We're in the 10th chapter. There are 14, so we just have a few more sermons in this. Uh, divine pursuit, we've endured months of impending judgment towards Israel, towards God's people. 750 plus ish years prior to the coming of Jesus is when Hosea is writing to God's people. It was Israel. Um, The the kingdom was divided, there was Israel to the north, Judah to the south, there was civil war, there was lots of of unrest politically, but the way that they were living was that they were kind of assimilating into the culture and and things were pretty decent for them in terms of prosperity, etc. So so we're gleaning the nature of God's heart against sin and His divine pursuit of His unfaithful bride. We've done that, and here's the thing, today's is no different. It's it's not any different. Uh, I heard somebody uh, uh, during this series uh, when the person read the focal passage, they were in the back of the room. They said, "Oh man, like he, he's talking, he's talking about this again. It's the same thing, and we're just sitting in it and figuring out what uh, God has for us as we look at God's people uh, that that navigated this journey with Him." a long time ago. So today's no different. We see that Israel, they threw the first stone, but God goes to war with his own. And at the heart of rebellion, as Hosea describes in this chapter, chapter 10, is prosperity and comfort without acknowledging God. So we're going to untangle some. Threads. We're going to dive in, but first, I would love to pray and ask that you would just pray that our hearts would be open, that our that our eyes would see, that our minds would be able to kind of track with what's going on here, and we would be able to be transformed by God's work through His Word. God, thank you for a day like today where we celebrate new members, and we know that people come in in lots of ways. Some excited and, and ready to sing and and rejoice and pray and and listen and sit under Your Word, and, and others who are a little more beat up and, and just kind of weary from, from the week and from the weekend. And it seems like there is no rest today. Would you, would you just invite us to abide in you and whatever that looks like? Would you reveal our hearts and show us where they don't trust in you, where we turn from you to other things that will let us down? And would you, would you give us the freedom to trust Christ alone for the fullness of life and plenty and in want? In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're looking at is is when we have little need, we depend on what we love. All right? And so Hosea chapter 10, I'm going to read just the first verse. It says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty nice, right? Uh, It sounds like a healthy plant, you could say, Uh, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. And so things are healthy, luxuriant even, great altars, great pillars. See, See, wealth and comfort has led to really nice worship facilities. They have elaborate lighting, and they have like the best Sound system, and they have music that people would literally pay to see. That that's what Israel has here. They have fountains in the foyer, and stadium seating, and the best coffee in town. They literally have it all, right? On a personal note, like that—that's as a community, that's what they have. But but personally, what that would look like for us is—is is we have like. Like a, a sweet little prayer nook at home. It's like really nice. And it's just a space that you can go to whatever. And you have like a sweet leather bound prayer journal. And like you sometimes use it. And that's awesome. And you have like really nice things. And, and you have like worship playlists. Just like you can just scroll through. And you have, you have all that you can handle. But, but what this says is, but their hearts are far from the Lord. It says their hearts, their heart is False. That's what it says, which is, gosh, that's verse 2. So they have all these things, and they've been blessed by prosperity. Verse 2, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. It's, it's pretend. It's a show. It's not aimed in the right direction. As we go on, their worship is, is shiny and shallow, It's loud and meaningless. It's distant from anything real, from the real feelings. It's all the ingredients there with no oven to bake the cake. So they have all these things. As we go on, uh, this is kind of me summarizing this in in verse 3. We have no king, no fear of God. What could a king do for us? They're boasting in their independence. They mutter mere words with empty oaths, is what it says. They're the best prayers in town. And it means nothing. They confess, Lord, I am yours. They are not his. They look great on the outside. But it's it's just loud and meaningless banter and chatter. Yet they tremble in the presence of the golden calf that they have made. There's like a lot of play on words here. So, some interesting things that's going on. So, so uh, the... The north, 10 tribes to the north, Israel, two tribes to the south. But the south has Jerusalem. So all these people, once a year, are going and they're visiting the temple. And you know what that does to the north? It takes their money because they're not having this big festival and pilgrimage. And so they're like, man, this is not okay. Like, uh, so we're going to make two shrines in our nation, so that those people don't have to go to the, to the temple, but they can just stay home and worship here. And so we're going to have a golden calf to the north, and we're going to have a golden calf to the south. And the one to the north was in a place called Dan. It had already been destroyed by Assyria. And in the south, it's at this place called Bethel. But Hosea, he's a funny guy. And he doesn't say say Bethel, right? So there are these shrines. The word Bethel means place of God. And so, hey, you're going to go to the place of God. But he says Beth-Avon, which probably is funnier when he says it, right? Which means place of sin. So he's, he's mocking their idolatry. He's mocking their sin, mocking the intentions of the heart. And then, as we read on in verse 6, the the thing, the idol, it will be carried away to Assyria. So, all this is literal judgment that God is bringing through the Assyrians. Israel will be ashamed of its idols. Like, I know not everybody's a football fan, but you know the Bengals, they've not been good for a long, long time, and suddenly they're pretty decent. Some of you might be Cleveland Browns fans. Some of you might be Detroit Lions fans. Some of you might be old Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans where they wore the creamsicle stuff and they just didn't win forever. Or New Orleans Saints fans. All those fans know what it's like to show up to a game with a jersey on and the number and you say, here I am. And then you'll see on the the CBS broadcast, you see these fans in the stands with bags over their head. Cut out holes so they can see the terrible performance of their team on the field that's the imagery that that you have put your heart into something that you're ashamed of you will have a, a bag on your head you'll be ashamed of what you've done and that's that's funny but it's a real window into the foolishness of putting our heart in the hand of the thing that we love when the thing we love has no shot at meeting the demand required to bear our divine worship. That's the shame that Hosea is talking about. So like for us in, in community group last week, as we, we think about this stuff and, and these themes recur, we, we talked about what it looks like to like in what season of life have you been like most committed to the lord and and there there were several examples shared but but they were likely these scenarios where we we throw our ourselves at the feet and the mercy of god they're not the times when everything's just going really well they're the times when like things are really kind of crappy and when when things are really tough, we find ourselves desperate and weak, and the reality is for those who who have a relationship with the Lord by the finished work of Jesus, the one requirement that we have to confess is that we are weak. When we have it all, it's hard to say that. Because you could say like, money? I'm not weak. House? The nicest on the block. Job? Look at me. Corner office? Whatever it is. And so, so it's, it's difficult, and you know the Bible consistently talks about the difficulty of being, of being wealthy and devoted to Jesus. Can you be those things? You sure can. But is there warning a, 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 against those things? There sure is. And so, so the idea that we can be broke as a joke with bills to pay and tired and weary, and in those moments we are, are uh, often most near to the Lord because we don't have the answers in our hands. See, dependence is one horrendously overlooked quality of, of a relationship with God that, that's worth fighting for. We must maintain our dependence upon him. So, so the warning is that prosperity brings dependence on created things cover to cover. That is a problem for God's people. And it's that we don't, we don't love the author, but we love his book and it's, it shows up a thousand ways in Scripture, but, but we fall in love with created things that can't sustain our divine worship. They will crumble. They will fail. And yet, we throw ourselves. So, so what is it to be dependent upon the Lord? Well, three real quick things. It means that we get to know where we fit. You get to know that, that you didn't fling the planets. I watched this documentary, I don't know what it's called, something about infinity, Journey to Infinity. It's on Netflix, real nerd alert. Just one show, I watch it on the plane on the way back from Colorado, and I'm sitting there and Kim doesn't care. And I'm like looking over like, Kim, you're not going to believe this. And I've just been dying to use an illustration because it's just so good. And I don't even have one today. This is not even in my notes. But the idea is that we are really, really small like really, really small. And the greatest mathematicians and the greatest physicists on the planet come to a point where they say, yeah, we just don't know. Like what's beyond that? And the, I mean, I, I got to save some for some illustrations that actually make sense. But the point is we get to know where we fit, right? And we are not the creator of much. We get to manage a lot of the things that God has given us. And that's a sweet thing. And so and then we get to be filled with things, it's such a difficult thing when, like, the easiest thing to do is just complain. And when your neighbor or your friend or your coworker or your classmate, like, it's just all the bad stuff. And, and hey, how was your day? Well, you wouldn't believe. it was, It's like just the negative stuff is just so easy to say. But, like, what I'm saying and, and maybe what this is inviting us to do is to, to fight against that. And I'm not saying be smiling optimist when the house is on fire. I'm just saying we get to be filled with things when things go okay, you don't have to just say, well, yeah, it is nice that I got a raise, but it's more work, you know, like, okay, just be thankful, and we get to be near, like, you can't do any of this without being near to Jesus, and what does that look like? I I, I don't know, looks like a lot of things, and this is a start that you're here today, So, the blessing of prosperity is a slippery slope towards the dread of independence. The second thing that we see is when we build worship with idle hands, our temples are overtaken. And and what we get at here, again, in summary, is is political strength is a twig. It's, it's It's a... If they're depending on their political strength, it's a a twig. The religious show-offs are toppled. Materials are rusted out. Society turns and it burns, falls to the ground. And the thrust here in this section is that the religious component is in the trash. Corporately, israel their religiosity or, or their genuine pursuit of the Lord in the ways that He has invited them into—it's—it's it's a dumpster fire, and the political show and the political component of their life is down the drain. And they would look around and be like, "No, we're doing okay." And He's like, "Just wait." And so it says, "Kings perish; highs will be brought low, and destroyed by sin. And thorns and thistles will grow in the cracks." of the altars again they're not forsaking the lord they're adding other stuff into him and so these altars might be some of them there would be a cross in the background as it were not for them because jesus hadn't come yet but you get the idea but but then they would invite other stuff into this as well i.e. golden calves and so so he's saying that thistles will grow in the cracks of altars. There's decimation, destruction. The, the cracks of sin destroy your foundations of dependence and worship. It's like this idea of a, of a dystopian future where, where like you don't know why, but nothing's there. And the, the, the vines take over and New York City looks like a jungle. That, that's the picture. Or, or as one says, life. Uh, it, it, it finds a way. Right? Life finds a way. Or, or in this example, weeds find a way. And weeds will expose your the, the cracks in your worship. In my backyard, we have some pavers sit around, fire stuff, whatever. We have pavers that make up a basketball court. And every time, when I read this, I'm like, oh, I just think about like mowing the grass and seeing weeds and spraying weeds and plucking weeds, and, and then they're there again, and it's like, oh my gosh, like where did they come from? Like I laid the stuff down, like what's going on? You know, I put it under the pavers and everything, like what is this? And they find a way, or like on the other side of our garage, there's this vine stuff, and I'm, I'm just not, I'm just not kidding you that it's like it, it just increases my heart rate when I pull through the alley and into the garage. And I look up and I'm like, dude, I mow the grass. I tore this stuff down yesterday. And it's, it's literally to the top of my two-story garage. Like, how did it do it? It's just scaling all over the place. Like, it, it finds a way. And the imagery is, is applied to pillars of worship. Where are the cracks not set apart for God's glory? Because they will be exposed and they will be overtaken. We read on they they shall say to the mountains cover us and to the hills fall on us. They're pleading for earthquakes to devour them. That's what's that's what's going to happen when they experience the judgment of God. And and if you know the scriptures, you know that that's not the only place where that shows up. It happens a couple other times in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the very end of the book, days yet to come, by and large. In Revelation 6, the sky will fall in judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. If you have an image of God... Where the only characteristic that he has is is divine love, you don't have a full picture of the characteristic of of the one true God outlined in Scripture. He is loving, he's immeasurably gracious. As we talked about before, He's, he's perfectly patient, not infinitely patient. And so this judgment is on the radar. For, for them and Hosea, it's a local judgment. And then, then what we read about in Revelation, it's, it's a universal judgment. It's not localized. It's, what's, it's the fate of us apart from resting in the grace given to us in Christ alone. We read on, 9 and 10, from the days of, of Gibeah. It's a reference to numbers, 1920-ish, and I'm not just throwing out numbers, numbers is a book of the Bible. And in chapters 1920, 21-ish, there's this terrible sin. There's, there's a woman who's raped in brutal ways, she's chopped up, and she's, she's chopped up into 12 pieces and cast out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Not PG13. a window into the brutality of humanity. And, and what that does is it starts a fight, a big fight, right? War and violence. And what he's saying is in those days, you have sinned. And since then, you have continued to sin. The war of the unjust continues and it will overtake. And this, this is what he says, when I please, I will discipline them And the nations will be gathered against them for their double sin. I don't know this for sure, but I think it's because of the two false altars that he puts. So he's referencing this the whole time. He talks about their double sin. But basically, it's just they're like sinning in in terrible ways. And then we read on in verse 13. Because you have trusted your own way, you'll be rewarded with sin, injustice, lies, and war. You'll be destroyed again, that's my summary. Or or, or another way of saying it was, is there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's this idea of the law of the harvest, that you reap what you sow. And I remember when I was a kid on the farm going out and, and planting in the apple orchard, and long rows, straight lines, a, a few inches apart, uh, just a few inches deep, and, and weeks later, we, we went out and we, and we saw little things that didn't look like apple trees, and, and what it turned out to be was corn. Corn had grown in those places. And then uh, sometime later, stalks, and then finally corn cobs and all that, and, and it's like really, really bizarre. You know why? Because it didn't happen. I wasn't raised on a farm. But if I were, when you plant apples, you don't grow corn. That's never going to happen. And yet, we think that when we sow sin, we're going to reap righteousness. What he's saying is that's not how it works. When you sow seeds of sin, you don't reap the fruit of righteousness. At the end of the day, this is about Worship. This chapter is about worship, and the, and the worship that they were, they were giving was built with idle hands, insincere and lax, and hands that literally crafted idols. Their worship was pointed in the wrong direction. And when that happens, whatever we build our worship with, whatever, whatever we aim our worship at, it will come to nothing. Reasonably, that means that it isn't worth giving yourself to it to begin with. Like like we throw the word worship around pretty casually, pretty flippantly, and I'm not being all word police, but I think I am, actually. Like I just worship that dress, and I just worship that fit in that hair or the shoes or that song or that art or that sick guitar solo. Like, ah, a couple things. One, the dress isn't that nice anyway. Like, don't worship that, right? Um, that song is not that great, and you won't like it in six months. Trust me. But secondly, to worship, it, it's, it's this idea of supreme adoration, It's adoring something above everything else. And that's why we see it largely set apart for for deity, for this idea of the divine, that we get to worship something that's that's greater than all of life. It's it's to live with with everything else in light of that thing that you're beholding. It's it's to prize above everything else. So, So to worship creation or to worship things built with hands, it sells our heart short by building our life on something that will be overtaken in war and it will be overtaken with vines. That's what all this imagery is. False hearted worship is destroyed in judgment. War and weeds in Israel's case and war and weeds in our case. Look, I know this time of year, I always start to use Pirates of the Caribbean references, and I don't know why that is. I don't even think they're my favorite movies, but around this time, for whatever reason, but I haven't watched them, but this this is helpful, I think. Um, Jack Sparrow, he's a pirate, and if you've never seen him, that's fine. They're very complicated <laughs> movies, right? Uh, but all you need to know, is that he's an eccentric pirate, and he has a compass that's broken, and you have all these people throughout the movie grab the compass and, and they look at it and it just spins and it points not north. And they say, hey, what do you want with a broken compass? And as far as compasses go, I looked up the definition this morning. They are supposed to point to magnetic north, right? So it is a broken compass, but it's, it's amazing as far as guidance goes. Because here's what that compass points to. That compass points to the thing which that person wants most in life. It tells them what they want more than anything else. And it might point to a person, and it might point to a treasure chest. It might point to whatever, to a place. But that is something helpful. Even if they don't know what it is, that's a scary thing in a in a room like this, can you imagine holding that compass and just looking around? and Like, what is it going to point to? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, that's a scary thing. If you don't want your altars overgrown, you get to identify what your compass points to. And, and we get to make sure that it's worth sailing to the ends of the earth for. Where does the compass of your heart point? A person, a place, a thing, an idea, a comfort, money, security. Like as individuals, we get to ask that question. As as churches, as a church, we get to ask that question. As society, we must ask that question. We don't have a broken compass to reveal our deepest worship. But we can see what controls our emotions and what we worry about most and what we dream about, whether we're awake or asleep, and what we hope in and what we sinned for. Those are some tells. What do you protect most when someone says that one thing? So we get to identify where we worship false gods, and we get to submit every thought captive to Christ. So what that means for us is, one, we get to say, God, would you help me see beyond the show, beyond the playlist? <laughs> would you show me what I'm putting my ultimate hope in? And let, let the Spirit invite you in to you being transformed to the image of Jesus. And, and when he shows you that, invite him to, to crush it. Is, is the altar of your worship susceptible to war and weeds? That's what, that's what we get to ask. The blessing of prosperity is a slippery slope towards the dread of Independence. The last thing that we see is when we sow seeds of righteousness, we reap the reign of steadfast love. And, and it's just verse 12, right? J- Jesus, he says, follow me. Like in the New Testament, again, lots of years after this passage in Hosea. But in the New Testament, the invitation for Jesus is, is to turn from your sin, behold me, and then, then your life will come after me. Follow me. So, so the question is really simple, is, is what then do I do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What is Hosea calling me to do? Like At, at some point, it's, it's heart stuff and it's mind stuff, but at the end of the day, like we have to do something, and he tells us, thankfully, in verse 12, this is what he says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up fallow ground. I believe that's like hard earth. Break that up. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Reap what you sow. Sow sin, reap judgment. Sow righteousness, reap steadfast love in and, and the full life where God will reign righteousness upon us. Righteousness, like what is that word? I know some turtles said it in a movie about 10 years ago, but other than that, we're like, what is that word? Culturally, righteous is more than just right things. It's, it's right things for right reasons. It's In this context, righteous meant doing right by your word doing right by the covenant, by your vows that you committed. And so do what you said you were going to do. Make your deeds and your words be one. Don't be the hypocrite. And, and that's that's the drum that Hosea has been, been banging this whole time. Return to the Lord like... Walk out your vows, the vows that you made, the essence of righteousness, it's returning to the Lord in his ways, his glory, and in us finding our joy in living for his glory. It's advancing good in the world that's messed up around us for his name. That's what it means to live righteously. So just real simply, what's the command or what is the charge that it gives us? I think these might be on the screen. Yay, it's, it's that. Sow righteousness. And you're saying, what does that mean? If I surveyed 100 people on what it means to sow righteousness, like, what does that mean? I, I don't know. But I'm going to read something that may adjust the way that you think about it. In, in Romans chapter 3, I want to start reading in verse 9. This is what it says What then? This is New Testament, right? This is after Jesus came. Paul's writing a church to the, uh, writing a letter to the church at Rome. He says, "What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, the religious and the irreligious, are under sin, as it is written. Being mindful that we get to sow righteousness. None is righteous." No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is in open grave. They use the, their tongues to deceive. The venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we read on. That's that's quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah. We read on. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what all that means. You can't sow righteousness. That's what it means. You don't have the ability to do that inside of you. And you're saying, well, this is then, then we're in a real situation here. <laughs> so what do we do with that? Well... Paul writes to the Corinthians in in his second letter to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our, see if you can make the connection, for our sake, God made him to be sin, it's Jesus, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's it. You can't sow righteousness. You have no hope. None minus one, whose name is Jesus. And he came, and, and, and it says, Jesus, he cast our sin upon him, the perfectly righteous one, and he cast his righteousness upon all who believe in Christ alone. Break fallow ground. That's the second thing that, that he says here in Hosea. Grace doesn't oppose work. You know that, right? You know that? Oh, I'm not saved by my works, I, I, n- nor am I. But, but do you know that, that hearts that are redeemed by grace are transformed to engage in work? Like straight up. There's this parable that Jesus talks about, the parable of the sower and the seeds, and, it, and you may be familiar with it. There's a, a, a farmer scattering seed, and, and some of it falls on the stony ground, and it, and it can't develop any roots, and some of it on the path, and, uh, and the birds come and get it, um, and, and, and some of it in the thorns, and they're overgrown, and they can't, and some of it on the like the good ground and it produces lots of fruit. And Jesus said that, that seed is the word of God. And then, so, so what it becomes for us is this observation of like, hey, I know someone like that. And they were like on fire for Jesus for like a minute, but they had no roots and they were, and this person, the cares of the world just became too much and they stopped gathering with the church and they stopped whatever and then they, they fell away. And, and this person, fruit, man, like they heard the word of God and it's just like showed up in their life. But, but what's so tough for me in that parable is what do we do? It's an observation. So you're sitting there like, so I'm supposed to create in myself a heart that's soft so that it might receive, like, that's tough. And I don't know. This isn't in my notes either, really. Like, we're in trouble, right? We're in trouble right now. But what I think that we get to do as we are transformed by Jesus, we have a responsibility and, and what I think we get to do is tend our hearts and put ourselves in spaces that, that let the word of the Lord soften our hearts, that let this, this water come down and soak in through the cracks and we get to put ourselves in positions to hear the word, to be transformed by it, to be around people who will encourage us when we're down and who, who will rebuke us when we, when we stray. We get to do it. We have a responsibility. Jen Wilkins says this. Uh, spiritual disciplines nurture steadfastness. So the things that we do, like we gather together and we pray and we read and, and, and we, we share our faith and all those things. Spiritual disciplines, they nurture steadfastness, which means that as you do those things, they create patterns in your life that let you endure. What we repeat in times of ease, we recall in times of hardship. So, so man, it's, and, and I think there's a flip there, that like when we're drawn to the Lord when things are tough, some of it is that, that we're just in a tough place and we don't know who else to call on. But, but if we're able to walk with the Lord when things are, are decent around us, man, that's the thing that's going to anchor us when life gets really hard and, and just wants to knock us off of our feet, and the last thing, seek the Lord. Or simply put, as, as we read in the scripture, seek first the king and his kingdom. And all the basic needs of your life, you'll be just fine. Seek him first. And then we see, again, in this, uh, the response, well, w- well, what is the promise if we do those things? And the promise is this, that we reap steadfast love, A, a, a love that's beyond our basic needs. That, that we have divine love from God. And secondly, that we receive the reign of righteousness, righteousness from God. That he pours his righteousness upon us. The band can come up. I want to close out this way. We started with this quote. Many books have been written to help Christians cope with adversity. Few have been written to help cope with prosperity. This book, Hosea, is a lighthouse of hope, even though it sometimes doesn't really feel like that. I dare you to read the end of Hosea sometime this week. We'll get there. But I have to like preach week by week, knowing that there's good stuff at the end. I can't wait to get there. Scott's probably going to get to preach that, for all I know. but it's also a signal flare of warning. And so I want to close today in light of all that stuff with just a warning that God gave his people before they entered the promised land flowing with milk and honey, all right? Out of the Exodus, before they showed up and, and, and lived a cushy life, all right? And I want to leave us with this warning today. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Could you imagine when they're hearing that and they're like, oh my gosh, I can just taste the barley or whatever they're into. Can you imagine kids not having to worry about anything? That's the life that God is bringing us into. Let's read on a life without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. It's like too good to be true. And you shall eat and you will be full. I've never been full before. I know, son, but this is where we're going. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the land, uh, for the good land he has given you. Here's a warning. Take care who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery Man, can we not forget the grace that's been given to us that in Christ alone we have not been freed from Egypt directly but in Christ we are free indeed from sins gripped from God's judgment from ungrateful greed from comfortable corruption You are free to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. The blessing of prosperity is a slippery slope towards the dread of independence, but going all in on Jesus frees us to live thankful and joyful in plenty and in want. And we get to respond today. We can do that in lots of ways. There'll be some questions on the the screen. We get to reflect and repent and respond as we read those, you can sit right where you are and pray. You can stand up and sing with the band. Be an encouragement to your neighbor by singing out these truths that we get to. You can pray over there at that prayer bench. You can pray with my wife and I back there. You can pray at that red tree over there. Someone would love to pray with you. You can respond if you're in Christ by taking communion. It's just crackers and and juice. But it's set apart. It's, it's a meal set apart to remind us that we are indeed invited to a meal in the family of God by the finished work of Jesus. It's a reminder for us to search our hearts and submit our sin to what Jesus has already accomplished. If that's not your life, if you've not trusted Jesus, that isn't for you, but we would love to chat. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your provision and all the ways that you provide. Thanks for those that that have lived prosperously, and in in some way in this country, we all get to do that, would you let that not be a stumbling block? Would you let us be generous people, not depending on our stuff, but depending on you and you alone? In Jesus' name.